Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Good to see you today. You're one of my favorite churches. It's good to be here. This from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is he born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the chief priests of the peoples and their teachers of the law, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me that I too might go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another way. Let us pray. Show us, Lord, the meaning of this story. And may the journey that it speaks of, of old, may it become our journey and the journey of this generation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have any of you ever been to Washington, D.C., to the Willard Hotel? That's where Mr. Lincoln stayed for several weeks before he was inaugurated. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant liked to get his work done as president by about 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon. And he liked to walk the two blocks from the White House to the Willard Hotel. And there he would smoke a cigar and have a brandy. And those that were hoping to influence his view of the law used to buttonhole him on his way through the um, vestibule of the hotel. And that's where we get our word what? People who try to influence the law. What do they call them? A lobbyist. 
Um, you can go to the bar there, have a lemonade or whatever, and you'll see pictures of people who have stayed at the Willard Hotel. Emily Dickinson, the poet, loved the place, and she stayed there. Charles Dickens of The Christmas Story stayed there, and a host of other people. Anyway, Mark Twain was staying there one time. In fact, he was sitting in the lobby having a cigar when one of his book friends walked up to him and said, Mr. Twain, I wish I'd never read your book. And Twain was shocked. He was taken aback. And then the man went on to say, so I could read it all again for the first time. <laughs> Do you ever feel like that about the Bible? Uh, that we've read it and reread it and it's lost its first surprise and we could read it again with new eyes and ears. Let's try to do that today with one of the most famous stories of the Advent season, the coming of the wise men. Now, first of all, let's take a little quiz about what we know about the wise men. How many wise men were there? We don't know. Most people say three. Why? There were three gifts, but 20 people could bring three gifts, or two people could bring three gifts. So there were at least two, probably more. And since people traveled in caravans for safety in those days, it could have easily been a larger number of people. Um, were the wise men, is it right to call them, we three kings of Orient are? They weren't kings. They were magi. Uh, they were wise men, probably practitioners of Zoroastrianism. They were astrologers and more who believed that God wrote in the heavens the things that he was about to do in history. Um, we often say the three kings are from the Orient, which means basically China. They were from Persia, much closer to Israel than China. Uh, we think we know the names of the three wise men. Can any of you name one of them? Casper, Belshazzar, and Melchior. If you wanted to find the grave of one of the wise men, um, I believe it's Melchior, where would you go in Europe to find his tomb? If you're into Catholic liturgy and relics, uh, you would go to Cologne Cathedral in Germany, and there in the center of the nave, uh, they claim to have the wise man's body. Uh, in our traditions here in Southern America, don't we often portray one of the wise men as being yellow-skinned, another one white-skinned, and another one black? Is that accurate? They were Persians from the east. They weren't white. There was no black man there. Uh, they were what we would call yellow, uh, the Orient of people from Persia. Uh, we often, in our celebration, set up a, a, a creche, a nativity scene, and we have the shepherds and the wise men kneeling together with the cows and the doves and the angels. Uh, is it true that the wise men were there the same time as the shepherds? It says, if you read carefully in the passage, when they came to the house where Jesus lay, 
they bowed down and worshipped him and opened their treasures. Uh, Joseph couldn't find room at the end because of the tax census. And that census only lasted a few days. It's natural that he would have gotten better accommodations than a barn for his wife as the crowd thinned out. So we think the wise men came several weeks, perhaps even several months later than the shepherds, the actual night of Christ's birth. Um, did the wise men visit on the 25th of December? Most people think that Jesus was conceived during the Jewish festival during the Christmas season uh, called Hanukkah. And nine months later would have put it late summer or September. And most scholars believe Jesus probably was born in September. Uh, one of the um, proofs that that probably is the case is this. Shepherds were abiding in the field watching their flocks by night. It gets very cold in Israel. I've been there before when there was a foot of snow on the ground in Jerusalem. Uh, the wise men don't, or the shepherds don't abide in the fields in the winter. It's too cold. They bring their flocks in and they stay indoors themselves. So probably Christ was born in late summer, somewhere in September, nine months after the Hanukkah celebration. How is it we've come to worship Christ and celebrate his birth on the 25th of December? When the gospel was being brought into Europe, the Druid religion was predominantly the faith of people across Europe. Uh, the Druids were a people that were very connected with nature. And they notice right now the days were getting shorter, the nights longer, the sun was diminishing, and they thought they had somehow angered the sun. And he was so peeved, he was leaving light. And he was leaving heat and bringing on a perpetual winter. And without fertility, without new crops in the ground, a man couldn't survive in darkness and without another crop. And so they built huge bonfires on the tops of mountains to say, look, Mr. Sun, we're friendly. Come back and stay with us. Return. And of course, when the days began to get longer again, after the longest night, the winter solstice, December 21st, they thought that their religion had worked its way out. Um, Christians trying to engage Europe with the gospel chose the winter solstice time for Christ's birth. He's the light of the world. And what could be more of an important time to celebrate him and engage the Druids than around December the 21st, which was the feast of Saturnalia, uh, the feast that was a fertility, a cult feast, basically. And they engaged the gospel with that culture by placing the birth of Christ, which the Bible doesn't tell us when it is, but they put it on the 25th so they could preach the gospel to a pagan culture. T.S. Eliot wrote a wonderful poem that I would encourage you to read this uh, Christmas season called The Journey of the Magi. Let me just read a little piece of it. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey it was. 
with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Can you imagine them taking an expensive and lengthy trip and the devil in their ear saying, you're wasting your time. Let's take a look with new eyes and fresh ears at the coming of the Magi and the different forces that impinged upon their life that brought these men who already had their own religion to abandon their religion and take up the faith of Christ, to make a long journey to find him, and to open their treasures and give them the finest things that they had. Spiritual hunger was certainly one thing that contributed to the journey. Now this has to be the most politically incorrect story in the Bible. For these men were practitioners of what is often called the world's oldest religion, Zoroastrianism. Many people call it a dead religion, but there are still a few in Persia who practice it today. They build these flat-topped pyramids called ziggurats. I'm not making this up. And they sat cross-legged on the top or lay on their backs and they studied the skies. And they watched for movements of the constellations. And they believed the handwriting of God of the future was pretended in what they saw the heavens doing. So these men were what we would call foreigners who had their own religion and they were about to give it up for a faith that they considered greater. Their own religion just simply wasn't enough. It didn't satisfy them. They were hungry for more. So they crossed cultures. They crossed boundaries. They asked questions. They took a very costly journey most theologians believe that the journey of the Magi could have lasted as long as six months or longer. The journey there and the journey back home. And it would have cost a considerable sum of money. And it would have been a dangerous journey because the caravans were often attacked by brigands. So they would have traveled in a group for protection and traveled across many international boundaries and through different zones of different religions, these Zoroastrians, and they would have come to Judaism and found the birth of Christianity there. Another issue that impinged these wise men beyond spiritual hunger was nature. In the heavens they looked up and they saw a star which they followed. Psalm 19 uh, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. There's no words, yet in the silence of the word, it goes out to all the earth. If you visit Chapel Hill, where I live, the Moorhead Planetarium there has the story of the Christmas star each year. I don't know how accurate it is. I tend to believe that um, what they saw was a miraculous star not a series of constellations and conjunctions. I like that theory, and I like to discuss it, but uh, it came to rest over the place where the child lay. So it seems to be a specific star that God created, not a comet or not the conjunction of three planets. But carved around the dome inside of the Moorhead Planetarium is Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
The last time I was there, I asked the lady that I bought my ticket from, what time does the evangelistic meeting start? And she looked at me like I was from a different planet. And I said, what time does the church service start? And she said, sir, you're confused. This is a scientific investigation into the coming of uh, the Christmas star. And all I did was smile and point at the ceiling. And she looked up there, and three-foot golden letters, 75 feet high, it said, the heavens declare the glory of God. And she said, oh my, I've never seen that before. John Donne, the poet, said, nature is God's greatest evangelist. Let me tell you a story about stars and nature and how I've seen it lead people to Christ. Uh, quite a number of years ago, when I was youthful, I spent the night at St. Catherine's Monastery in the wilderness of Sinai. Uh, we got up from our plank beds with straw mattresses at 3 a.m., and we began to climb Mount Sinai. The reason you get up at 3 a.m. is it gets hot there. And so you want to um, climb in the cool. And also, the sun rises around 6 o'clock, the time of year that I was there. And it's really worth it to see the sunrise over Mount Sinai. So me and my tourist group spent the night at St. Catherine's, got up at 3 a.m., and began to hoof it up the mountain. Now, I thought we were going to be the only group up there. But it turns out we were just the slowest hikers. Uh, these groups of people babbling all kinds of languages passed us one after another. And I counted them at first, but when it got to be over 75, I gave up in despair that there was going to be a crowd on top of this mountain. We got up there about 5.15 or 5.30, and there must have been several hundred people on top of the mountain. You could smell the whiskey. You could smell the urine. There was trash from their picnic strewn around. And some of them had been up there drinking all night. And there was an Australian. Bloody mate, what's this mountain again? It's Sinai, stupid. Why did we climb all the way up here to freeze our baguettes off? And somebody said, this is where Moses gave the law. The law of what, this Australian voice said. The Ten Commandments, stupid. Well, can you name any of the Ten Commandments? Never heard of them myself. And I thought, boy, this is a drunken, body crowd. I mean, there was an orgy going on on top of Mount Sinai. And I was rather upset about it. Well, six o'clock came. And let me just tell you that the sky was like black velvet. And if you had crushed diamonds into powder and yet left nuggets of diamonds, and you had thrown them across that black velvet sky and illuminated each particle from behind till it was a pale blue, and even some of them were yellowish or reddish. That's what the sky looked like. The smear of the Milky Way across that dark sky. Without any warning, this orange ball popped up over the horizon. 
And just as it popped, it sent out a green gleam of light. Um, if you've ever seen the green light of dawn, the, the first color that breaks through the atmosphere, for some reason it's green. It's very hard to see uh, here in America, but in the dry desert of the Sinai, you get that green light. Suddenly, the whole crowd on Sinai were on their feet, and they cheered the sunrise. And as the sun made its way up higher, they were so overawed with the desert around Sinai and the light coming that people began to get down on their knees and quietly pray. And then somebody took up a song, a hymn, and began to sing it. And other voices broke in. And suddenly there were people singing a famous hymn in three or four different languages. You, you could see nature hush a pagan body, sinful crowd. Just hush them with one blush of the hand of a sunrise created by God. These are what the Magi saw. Nature pushed them in the right direction. Their spiritual hunger brought them there. Common sense was another factor that impinged upon the journey of the Magi. Psalm 32 verse 9 says, Don't be like a horse that without a bit in his mouth and a bridle uh, with somebody tugging him to the left or the right won't keep step with you. In other words, use your head, use the good sense God has given you. The wise men started saying, well, the star we've seen in the east, and it's moving towards Jerusalem. Let's go to Israel's capital and ask if anybody knows about the king that's to be born in this time. For surely if God was going to do something, he would tell the great nation of the Jews, and it would come out of the capital. So the big city was the clearinghouse of ideas. A fourth <clears throat> a factor that impinged upon the Magi to make their journey was secular society. Now when we call the wise men the wise men, that's really a misnomer because the wise men were basically stupid. King Herod was a murderous, paranoid dictator. He killed his son because he thought his son was going to usurp his crown. He murdered his wife because he thought she wanted to be a queen without a king and rule herself. All of these things led Caesar to say of Herod that it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his family members. So this paranoid, murderous dictator has these three strangers from Persian walk in, smelling of camel sweat, smelling of curry, bringing all kind of treasures, dressed funny, and they ask the dumbest question of Herod they could have ever asked. Um, excuse me, Herod, where is he born king of the Jews? Now you have to see this man sitting bolt upright on his throne and turning palely green. King of the Jews? There's only one king of the Jews. That would be me. 
A child is born that's going to be king of the Jews? Well, we can't let this stand. Now, look at the stupidity of Herod. He's an old man by now. He's going to be dead in two or three years. If he can read actuarial charts, he should know that. And yet he thinks that he has a boy child that threatens his throne. And he decides one of us has to go and it's not going to be me. So the wise men stumbled into a very dangerous place. They asked a very unwise question. This is one of the places in the Bible where, as a theologian, I can safely say that God sometimes hits a straight lick with a crooked stick. Herod was a very crooked stick. And yet God used him to encourage and guide the wise men on their way. He can sometimes use the secular world to guide us. When I hear of uh, Christians that are upset about certain novels or poets, and they want to ban books or burn a book, uh, I think of one of the books that often gets burned or banned, J.D. Salinger's book, The Catcher in the Rye. I read that as a junior high school boy. And it's about a prep student that's as lost as he can be, who goes into the city and looks for meaning in life and doesn't find any. It's just a dark tale of adolescence growing up lost. I read it and saw myself in that uh, Holden Caulfield, I think was his name, character. And really it was that secular book, Catcher in the Rye, that pushed me along on my journey to find meaning in Jesus Christ. Truth is still truth, we say, even if you find it in a thief's pocket. Now, a fourth thing that impinged the wise man's journey was a dream. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, says something that most of us Christians don't fully understand. In many, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers, but in these latter days, he's spoken to us by a son. We talk in uh, scripture a lot about general revelation and specific revelation. There are two types of revelation, general and specific. General is the revelation that every human being gets. We all dream. We're all impinged upon by nature. We all have a modicum of common sense. The secular world beats us up and pushes us around and satisfies us or dissatisfies us. But here in general revelation, the wise men begin their journey because of spiritual hunger, common sense, uh, nature, and now dreams. If you want to see how big a factor dreams play in the Christmas story, look no further than Joseph. He had a dream to not be afraid to take Mary as his wife, even though she was pregnant. He had a dream to take the child and flee to Egypt because Herod was about to take the life of the son. He dreamed yet a third time that Herod was dead a few years later and he should take the child and return to Nazareth. When I uh, go back to Atlanta, 
I walk across the campus that I grew up on back in the 70s, uh, Emory University. And there's a certain park bench there that I return back to and I sit on. Uh, when I was a divinity student there, I went to school with about a thousand divinity students. And many of them were bright, eloquent speakers, uh, tall, athletic, intelligent. And I often measured myself by others. And I got a terrible comparison. And by my middler year there at Emory, I was in despair that I would ever amount to anything. And I remember walking uh, one day and sitting on that bench in depression saying, Lord, what can I bring you in service? I, I'm not a ten-talent man. And I sensed the Holy Spirit say, what do you want to do, Stephen? And I said, I would like to preach the word and I would like to write the word. And I would like to encourage this generation in ways that I wasn't encouraged but needed to be. And I remember sensing the Lord there in that vision saying, well, then that's what you shall do. And I got up from that bench and went forth into a ministry that I'm about 54 years into now. Um, and the Lord has kept his promises to me. Uh, a dream is often a nocturnal message of God that comes to us when we're asleep. But a vision is a waking dream that comes to us while we're awake. And I think on that bench there on Emory's campus, that's what the Lord was doing with me. So the general revelation ways that the wise men were spoken to by the Spirit, beckoning them and guiding them and whispering in their ears on this long, expensive, dangerous journey to the birth of the Christ child, were common sense, spiritual hunger, secular society, dreams. But notice Herod took them a step further. He called the wise men and the Old Testament scholars of his day together and said, have you heard about a Messiah being born? And if so, where will he be born? And they quoted from one of the minor prophets, Micah, the fifth chapter. He'll be born in Bethlehem. For you, Bethlehem, though you're a tiny town, you're not the least of the cities of Jerusalem. For from you shall come a great ruler who will lord over my people Israel. Now, we've moved beyond what we theologians call general revelation to specific revelation. In the most specific way that God reveals himself to us is through scripture. If you want to hear the voice of God, read the Bible. If you want the clearest high water mark level of divine revelation, it's in the Holy Scriptures. And even in an insignificant book that you probably haven't read in years, Micah, the fifth chapter, there are instructions that lead us to the cradle of Christ. God spoke in many and various ways, as Hebrews said, in many and various ways, but in these latter days he's spoken to us through a son, and his son was the word of God made flesh and dwelt among us. Hunger got a moving, common sense helped, nature assisted, Herod, sure, 
But scripture gave them specific directions. You're going to Bethlehem. Now, as a Reformed theologian, in my ordination vows, we take a promise that we believe the scriptures are the only, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Not dreams, not common sense, not reason, not science, but the high watermark of divine revelation is scripture. What does scripture say about itself? Look at 2 Timothy, the third chapter. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable to help us grow as a Christian. Well, what the story of the Magi tells us is this. There is a God. He is there and he is not silent. He wants a relationship with us, no matter how we smell or what our gender is or what the color of our skin is. He wants fellowship with us. He wants to declare his glory among the nations. And he's calling the nations to himself through general revelation. And nobody can hide from that. The heavens declare the glory of God. There is no place sunrise doesn't come. When the sun comes out, nothing can hide from its strength and its heat. But in a very specific way, he's revealing himself through Jesus Christ, his only son, and the record of that person's life. Sometimes when I walk across Duke University's campus to, to speak in a chapel or in a student meeting, I have my Bible and my notes ready. And the campus at Duke is like, a babel of people from all over the world. The most obvious people on Duke's campus today are students from India. Do you know the nation of India has more gifted and talent, high IQ students, more gifted and talented IQ students than we have students in the whole of the United States. These are people born in extreme poverty uh, poverty or extreme wealth and many of them's only way out of poverty is through academia hard work and they study and they want to go to one of the best schools and so India has many students at Duke University then you see students from China then you see black students and being an Anglo-American highly out of style politically today and color wise and also being a male I'm way out of fashion on campus today. People will tell you, white man, you have had your time. It's our time now, you take a back seat. I get that some in the woke movement, but I think it's better to say, Jesus loves the little children. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, we're all precious in his sight. He loves the little children of the world, and I hope that I can be one of them and not think that I'm the only one. And if you make the mistake of thinking because you're red or black or yellow that you're better than the white, then you make the same mistake that we whites have made in the past. And it shouldn't be duplicated. But anyway, I look at this complex society at Duke that looks like the Tower of Babel to me. And I always say, Lord, how can I speak to this generation? 
They're all over the map in what they believe. And then I remember God calling the wise men to himself. He is doing that for every human being on earth. Those of you that want to ask the question, what about those who've never heard of Christ? Will they be judged? And my usually smart aleck answer is, I'm concerned about that too. Why don't you and I get converted and go be missionaries and do something about that? Let's go tell them the good news. But I also point them to this passage which says there is no person that hasn't heard about God through nature, through stars, through their dreams, through their common sense, through the whisperings of their spiritual hunger, through the rough and tumble of the secular life. And we can be that Herod, weak as we are in our own talents in ministry, who read the scripture to them and point them specifically to Bethlehem and to Christ. In closing, do you know what the world's most famous Christmas song is? White Christmas. White Christmas by Bing Crosby. When it first came out, uh, it didn't make much of a stir. Even the movie was something of a flop. But within three years, people said, you know that song in the movie, White Christmas? That song has something to it. That song has been uh, sung by over 500 different voices in America alone. And that song is being sung even now in the Advent season. Though it's a secular song, Barbara Streisand, a, Jew, a Jewish woman, sang it. Uh, Lady Gaga has a version of it out. What we are living in our days is the song of the wise men. We're each on our journey. And wherever you are in that journey today, keep walking. Take the next step. Lord, I want to see your face. Bring me to Bethlehem. And make me an encourager for others on their long journey that they can find Christ as I found him. Let us pray together. Oh, how we thank you, Lord, for this wonderful story full of so much mystery and charm and yet so real to the journey that we've been on ourselves. Guide us, Lord. Guide us to Jesus that we might fall on our knees and give him our trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.